Shalom, and welcome back to TanakhStudy.com and our study of Sefer Dvarim. My name is Menachem Diktag. Today we begin our study of Parshat Re'eh. Today is the very first shiur on the parasha. We begin in chapter 11, verse 26. Today's shiur will conclude with chapter 12, verse 5. Our main topic today will be the transition into the main section of the main speech, better known as the Chukim and Mishpatim. But before that section begins, we have a short law about a ceremony that is supposed to take place on Mount Eval, where the blessing and curse will be presented to the people facing two mountains. So let's begin Ashur in chapter 11, verse 26, with the opening line of the parasha, Re'eh, to see or pay attention. I am putting in front of you today, a blessing and a curse. The word Re'eh in Hebrew is very similar to its meaning in English, which technically means to see, that is with your eyes, in classic vision, but in the context here, it means to understand. Like we say in English, do you see what I mean? Here, Moshe Rabbeinu uses the word not only to catch the people's attention, but in order for them to understand the laws that he's presenting from a wider angle, and to present a very important mitzvah, which will be parallel to the event of receiving the Torah in Mount Sinai. This law that he's about to present will be a law that he can only command and not fulfill, because like many of the laws in Sefer Tavarim, it is a law that can only be performed in the land of Israel. However, this law, unlike most of the laws in Sefer Tavarim, is going to be a one-time law that is not for all generations, but only for the first generation as they enter the land. As we will soon explain, this law forms the interlude between the Hamitzvah section that concluded in chapter 11 and the Chukim and Mishpatim section that begins very soon in chapter 12 and will continue all the way to the end of chapter 26. But this law itself, that Moshe is going to begin to present its details now, in the end of chapter 11, in the beginning of Parshat A, is only going to be the introduction to a law that won't be concluded until chapter 27. That sounds probably a little confusing. Let me explain what I mean. We explained many times that the primary section of the main speech will be from chapter 12 to 26, better known as the Chukim and Mishpatim, a set of very practical laws of day-to-day life that Amisra must keep once they enter and conquer the land. But before these laws begin in chapter 12, they're introduced by a ceremony that will need to take place on Harival, where these laws will be taught. But the details of this ceremony will only be presented in chapter 27 after the main part of the speech is over. Therefore, this commandment of the ceremony in Harival, which will include a blessing and a curse, forms an envelope around the main law section of the speech. We will see that once Moshe Rabbeinu concludes teaching these laws at the end of chapter 26, immediately afterwards, in chapters 27 and 28, he will command them to perform a ceremony on Nameval. There, the Kohanim and Levim, the educational leaders of the nation, are going to teach these laws on Harival. There, we will also find a ceremony on Harival, very similar to what happened in Mount Sinai, where after teaching the laws, they will also bring sacrifices to God. And after teaching the laws and bringing the sacrifices, there'll be a ceremony where the leaders will face one mountain, Hargrizim, and describe the blessing that they will receive should they keep the laws, and then turn their faces to Harival and explain the curse that will come on the land should they not keep these laws. So even though from a technical point of view, it would have been sufficient simply to describe this entire ceremony at the end of the speech together with its other details in chapter 27 and 28, Moshe Rabbeinu finds it important that before he begins teaching these laws, 
he already alludes to this ceremony before it begins. And that is what happens now in the first five verses of Parshat Re. So let's see what this ceremony is about in verse 27. Et bracha, what will be the blessing? Asher tishmu'u amitzvot Adonai Eloichem, that will happen when you obey the commandments of Hashem your God. Asher onochin mitzaveh etchem ayom, that I, Moshe Rabbeinu, on behalf of God, is commanding you to keep this day. Notice how that verse rings a bell from earlier in chapter 11, in verse 13, with the second parsha of Kriyat Shema that began with Vaya im and it will come to pass when you surely obey my commandments, and then I will give you rain at the right time, etc. The next verse echoes the second half of the second parsha of Kriyat Shema that began with If you don't listen to my laws, how the punishment will come. And sure enough, in verse 28, what will be the curse? If you don't obey the commandments of Hashem your God, and you go astray from the path of the way that I'm commanding you today, should you follow the other gods, gods that you yourselves do not know, referring obviously to the gods of Canaan, the gods of the land that they're about to enter. A quick note regarding the meaning of gods that you do not know. What God do they know? They know the God that took them out of Egypt. They know the God that gave them manna in the desert. They know the God that provided the clouds of glory that covered the camp. But it could be when they were in the desert, they served this God who took care of them in the desert and provided them with manna. But now when you come to the land of Israel, there may be a new God, the God who gives you rain, the God who gives you grain, the God who makes sure that fruit grows from the trees. These are the gods that the Canaanites worshipped for a good reason, because they provided them with their food. God is worried that once Am Yisrael conquers the land and begins a different lifestyle, they'll begin to serve different gods because those are the gods that they perceive. Moshe Rabbeinu is telling them, I want you to have a wider perception, which I think is a deeper meaning of the word re'e, to see and understand. This is more of a wide-angle view to look at the bigger picture and understand the new relationship that's going to happen once you come in the land. And as he explained back in chapter 8, the whole purpose of the desert experience was to get them ready for this new relationship. And Moshe Rabbeinu wants the people to perceive God through nature just as they perceive God through miracles. Because in essence, a miracle that happens every day is called nature. Now we find the details of where this ceremony will take place. Pasach Haptet, verse 29. And it shall come to pass when Hashem your God will bring you to the land that you are now going to conquer, you should put the blessing on Mount Grizim and the curse on Mount Eval. We are quite sure where they are located today, in the area near Shechem. Har Eval, we are 99.99% sure where it is. Har Grizim, there's an argument over two mountains nearby, one that is known as Har Grizim today, the other mountain, known as Jabal Kabir, where the Yishuv Elon Moreh is located. But that's an argument among tour guides and archaeologists. Moshe Rabbeinu has to give instructions to the people where to find these two mountains. Pasuk Lambeth, verse 30. Halohema be'ever hayardain. Are these two mountains not located on the other side of the Jordan? Obviously referring to the western side of the Jordan, in the land of Canaan. Acharei derach Shemesh. After the way where the sun sets basically to the west, 
in the land of the Canaanites who were living in the Arava, that's the Jordan Valley, but it's beyond the Jordan Valley, in the mountain range. Opposite the area of Gilgal, that is where the Jewish people will set up camp once they cross the Jordan River, near Elonei More, which is a site very close to Shechem. How do we know? Elonei More was mentioned when Avram first made Aliyah in the beginning of Parshat Lech Lecha. If you return to Sefer Breshit, chapter 12, in verse 6, when Avram first makes Aliyah to the land of Israel, Avram came into the land, into the place of Shechem, till the place called Elon Moreh. Now it's not exactly clear why this place is called Elon Moreh, but what is important is that the same place that Avram Avinu arrived at is the very same place where Am Yisrael was going to make this ceremony as they entered the land, and that for sure must be thematically significant, because the next line in Sefer Bereshit is, once Abraham Avinu arrived in Shechem in Elon Moreh, God told him there, God promised Abraham Avinu, this is the land I'm going to give your children and your offspring. This is the land where they will become that nation. And Abraham built a Mizbeach, he built an altar there. And in a similar manner, Amisro is going to be commanded to build an altar there and teach the Torah. So as we've seen many times in Sefer Dvarim, Moshe Rabbeinu is assuming that Am Yisrael is aware of the details of Sefer Breshit, and explaining the location of this place is not only a technical need to know where to go to, but more important, it's to understand the thematic meaning of where this ceremony is going to take place, and why keeping these mitzvot is so important, because it's going to fulfill God's promise to Avram Avinu, and relate to the underlying purpose for why Avram Avinu was chosen. We also find different opinions in regard to how to translate Elon Moreh. Sometimes we find it means the plains of Moreh. That's how the Turgum understands it, and that's how Rashi understands it. However, Ramban and Ebenezer understand that it's referring to a tree called the Adon tree, either called a terebinth, or what we would know nowadays as an oak tree. And as an alone tree can stay alive for many generations, it makes sense that it would serve as a landmark. And often, as it was in the case of Kfar Tzion, that alone tree served as a landmark for many generations. I would like to note a personal connection to this idea of an oak tree, of an alon, which served as a landmark, as in modern Jewish history, during the War of Independence, right before the State of Israel was declared, the Kibbutz Kfar Tzion and its defenders fell to the Arab Legion, and almost all the male defenders of Kfar Tzion died in that battle. The women and children had been evacuated earlier, and they survived the war, but they would come every year on the anniversary which later became Yom Karon for the State of Israel. And from a faraway distance, they would look at the Sedek Faritzion, and the landmark that they would see was a lone oak tree called the Alon. And from looking afar and seeing that oak tree, they would see the site of where they used to live and where their parents and husbands had fallen. Later, after the Six-Day War, those children of Faritzion came back and rebuilt the kibbutz, which became Faritzion of today. And a year or so later, a settlement was established near that oak tree called Alon Shfut because they returned to that oak tree, they returned to that landmark. That became the site of Yeshivat Haritzion and the site of the settlement of Alon Shfut. And it is interesting that the Alon tree served as a landmark in biblical times just as it served as a landmark in the history of modern Israel. Now the name Moreh is also interesting. 
Most commentators say there was a person named Moreh, because we know later on, at the end of chapter 13, Avram Avinu travels to Elone Mamre, and we know Avram had a friend called Mamre. Therefore, Elone Mamre would be the plains or the oak tree of Mamre, Avram's colleague. So it could be that Moreh was also a name of someone, or it could be alluding to something much deeper, because Moreh sounds like teacher or Hora'ah, and as we'll see in chapter 27 in Zvarim, the Torah will be taught on Harival. So it could be this name Moreh is alluding to the teaching of the Torah that's going to take place on that mountain. And as Rashi pointed out back in Sefer Breshit, the reason why Avram Avinu began his journey to Israel in Elon Moreh was because Am Yisrael will begin their entry into Israel and teach the Torah in Elon Moreh. This follows the exegetical approach that the stories of our forefathers foreshadow later Jewish history, what Ramban refers to many times as Maseh Avot Siman Labanim, what happened to our forefathers is an indicator of what will happen later in Jewish history to the offspring. We should also note that when Yaakov Avinu returns with his family after being in exile by Lavan and returns to the land of Israel after passing Esav, his entry into the land of Israel also begins with Shechem and from there they continue to Bethel. Avram Avinu also, after first arriving in Shechem, continues his journey to Bethel, where he calls out in God's name, and therefore, don't be surprised that the very next topic in Sefer Devarim will be setting up the house for God, Hamakom Hashem, which later will become Yerushalayim, or the thematic site of Beit El, of the house for God. That will be the next topic in Sefer Devarim as well. This background will help us appreciate now the next verse, Pasuk Lamed Aleph, verse 31. Ki atem ovrimete yardain, lavo l'reshet et ha'aretz, asher Adonai Eloichem noten lechem, because you are now passing over the Jordan River to come to conquer and possess the land that Hashem your God is giving to you, you shall conquer it and settle in it. Now verse 32, When you come in the land and settle it, then you have to keep all these chukim and mishpatim, all these statutes and laws, that I am putting in front of you today, which will now follow in the first line of chapter 12. What's coming up now in the next 27 chapters of the speech are going to be the Chukim and Mishpatim that you must keep to do. In the land that Hashem, the God of your forefathers, is giving you to possess, all the days that you will be living on the land. Now we're going to begin the detailed laws that Am Yisrael must keep once they come in the land. As we will soon see, the main commandment that Moshe Rabbeinu will begin with will be to establish one central place of worship, known as Hamakom HaShariv Har Hashem, Moshem. We'll translate that phrase very soon. But before establishing one central place to worship our God, the first thing we need to do is to rid ourselves of all the places of idol worship in the land that we're going to conquer. And that Moshe Rabbeinu will explain now in verses 2 and 3. Let's continue now with Pasuk Bet, verse 2. Totally destroy all the places where the nations whom you are driving out worship their gods. Al heharim haramim ve'al ha'gvo'ot 
on all the high mountains, on the hills, or under all the mighty trees. As people are inspired by mighty trees and high hills, it was very typical in the time of the Canaanites to put places of idol worship on these impressive places. As these sites will most likely also impress the people who conquered the land, God is worried that they'll continue to worship those gods, even though they'll conquer the people, they'll keep the places of worship, and they may become stumbling blocks and take people away from serving the proper God. Therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu continues now in Pasuk Gimel in verse 3, You must tear down their altars, and you must break up their sacred pillars, and the Rashira trees you must burn down, and their statues of their gods you must cut down, and you must obliterate the name or the reputation of those gods from this place. Meaning, from the land of Israel, wipe out all remnants of idol worship. Now comes a very interesting transition verse. Pasuk Dalit, verse 4. Do not do this to your God. What can you not do to your God? The simple meaning would be, do not cut down his altar. Or if there's a place of worship of your God, the correct God, the one and only God, do not destroy that place of worship. Rashi brings up this possibility and then says, why would someone think that it would be okay to destroy God's altar? Then he quotes from the Sifri. Rabbi Shmuel says, of course no one would think of doing that, which means don't act in a way like the nations did, serving other gods that will cause your sins for your temple to be destroyed. However, the most simple explanation as Rashi also suggests, as well as Eben Ezra, is that this is a warning not to serve your God like they serve their gods. How did those nations serve their gods on multiple places of worship, on all the high places and under mighty trees? This is a warning against serving God in many places in contrast to serving God in one central place. And therefore, the next line is key to understanding this transition. Pasuk hey, verse 5, Instead, to the place that Hashem your God will choose from all your tribes to put His name or reputation there, it is there that you shall seek for God's presence. What this commandment seems to imply is that when you come into land and destroy all the places of idol worship, don't replace those high places of idol worship with altars for your God. Instead, pick only one place to serve your God, and how you find this one singular place to worship your God, God will choose that place for you, but you have to search for it in order to find it. This concept of serving God in only one singular place, and not allowing multiple places of worship, we'll discuss more in detail in tomorrow's shiur. It will become a very complicated topic, because as we'll find through the entire First Temple period, and even during the time of the judges, it seems like there were many places where God was worshipped. And it's very difficult to tell people, if you want to sacrifice to God, you can only go to one central place. In tomorrow's class, we will discuss this dilemma, whether there should only be one place of worshipping God, or it's good to have multiple places to serve God. The main topic I would like to close today's class with is the name of the temple in Sefer Dvarim and the purpose of this temple in Sefer Dvarim. Notice we do not call it a mikdash. We don't call it the temple. Instead, the name is called by its function. 
המקום אשר יבחר השם, the place that God would choose, לסום את שמו שם, to place his name or reputation there. There's an underlying theme in the Torah, beginning again in Sefer Breshit, about making a name for God. When Avram Avinu first came to Israel, arrived in Shechem, and then traveled to Beit El, what did Avram do in Beit El? He called out in God's name. In chapter 12, verse 8 in Breshit, Vayiden Shamizbeach, Vayikra B'Shem Hashem. He built an altar to God and called out in his name. Avram returned to Beit El in chapter 13 after going down to Egypt. And he returns again and builds an altar and calls out in God's name. After he makes a treaty with Abimelech in chapter 21 in Sefer Bereshit, he plants an Eshel in Beersheba, and there he calls out in God's name. Yitzchak in chapter 26 will also return to Beersheba and call out in God's name. The commentators argue is he calling out to God in prayer or calling out about God in praise? But almost all commentators agree that the most important thing that Avram Avinu did was that he made a name for God. To the people in Hebron, he's known as the Prince of God, Nasi Elohim Atapetochenu. Avram brought the concept of this one God to civilization. And this was accomplished by both the way he spoke and the way he acted. Later, Yaakov Avinu when he's running away from his brother on his way to Lavan, he also stops in Bethel and has a dream. And if you remember in Parshat Be'etze, in chapter 28, in Sefer Breshit, there when Yaakov is running away, we hear by Yifgab Makom, he meets this place, which Chazal understands is a place of prayer. And he takes from the rocks of that Makom, from that place. He sleeps there. And there he has his dream. And the word makom is very central to Yaakov's dream and later his promise when he wakes up from that dream that this is a place to build a house for God. And he makes a promise, he makes a nedri, he makes a vow that when he returns from Levan, he'll return and build a house for God in this place. Which Chazal understand is the future site of the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. As the goal of the Jewish people will be to make a name for God and they will accomplish this by the way they behave, following the Torah and the mitzvot, the Moshe Rabbeinu is about to command, but also by talking about God, there's a need for one central place of worship for the sake of accomplishing that goal. And therefore we're going to find throughout Sefer Dvarim, especially in this Chukim and Mishpatim section, numerous commandments that are going to encourage people, and not only encourage, also obligate all the members of Israel to frequent this site all year long. In the end of Parshad Re'eh, in the end of this week's partial reading, in chapter 16, we're going to find that all the three pilgrimage holidays, the Shalosh Regalim, must be celebrated by Hashem in this one central place. We're going to find in chapter 14 that 10% of your produce is set aside and can only be spent in this Hamakom Hashem, in this place which later becomes Yerushalayim. If 10% of your produce could only be consumed and eaten in Yerushalayim, of course people will go and visit the place. Otherwise, all that produce goes to waste. If you have a firstborn animal, and every shepherd will have that, it must be offered as we will see. We'll have to bring later our brikori, our first fruits, the Supreme Court will be all the obligatory sacrifices have to be brought so there's no doubt that one of the key commandments as Sefer Devarim begins will be to establish this one central place to worship God. 
And the hope will be that this one central place of worship will promote and help facilitate the goal of the Jewish people as a whole. As we will also see, it will become a center of Jewish education because the tribe of Levi, even though they're scattered among the different tribes, they will need also to come on a regular basis to this place. And if the Torah is worried about the long-term goal of becoming God's people forever, the establishment of this one central place of worship will be key for not only achieving the goal to start with, but to make sure that that goal continues to be fulfilled. The details and the laws in regard to this site will be the topic of many of our discussions in Parshat A. We will continue with this study in tomorrow's share. To conclude our share today, I would like to share with you one short observation in regard to the last verse that we read, verse 5, We have to go to the place that Hashem will choose from all your tribes for His name and reputation to dwell. You must look for God's presence and then you will find it. There seems to be an inherent contradiction within this verse because how are we going to find this place? God will show us. On the other hand, it says we must look for it. We often take for granted that the site that Chumash is referring to is Yerushalayim and that turns out to be the end result. However, the Torah itself doesn't say it's going to be Yerushalayim. There may have been a tradition from the time of Abraham Avinu, from the time of Akedah Yitzhak, that would be the place. But when you study Nevi'im, especially Sefer Shmuel and Divar Yamim, it's quite clear that it was not known yet where that site would be until it is chosen in the time of King David. So why does God say that he will choose the place? And why, on the other hand, does it say that we must look for it? That dialectic is typical in religious growth where God's presence can be felt but if you don't look for it, you'll never find it. God may have already chosen the place that he would like Am Yisrael to build the temple, but if Am Yisrael is not in search of that place, if there's no desire to find God, if there's no desire to be his people, to keep his commandments, to represent him, then God will not show them the place. But once the people show a desire to find that place, then he'll make sure that they make the right decision. We see this in chapter 13, in the book of 1 Chronicles, in Divrei Hayamim Aleph, Perikid Gimel, in verse 3 in Pasa Gimel, when David HaMelech becomes king over all of Israel, one of the first actions he takes is to capture Yerushalayim. And after capturing the city and moving his government there, one of the first acts that he does is to bring the Aron, the Ark of God's Covenant, to bring that to his new capital, to his new city. And one of the first things that David does, as recorded there in Divrei Hayamim, as he gathers the nation together, let's all agree it's time to bring the Aron Brit Hashem, the Aron, the Ark of God's Covenant, to bring it to Yerushalayim. And he concludes by saying, Kilo Because during the time of King Shaol, his predecessor, we did not search for it. So we see that one of the key differences between David and Shaol, and one of the reasons why David is chosen instead of Shaol, Shaol may have established a very strong kingdom and built a strong army and helped Israel return to security. But as a national leader, it was not a primary goal to care about the Ark of the Covenant and the one central place of worship. In contrast to that, when David becomes king, that becomes his primary goal. He wants to make sure that we're not only a nation with security, he wants to make sure we're a nation that represents God. And at the center of our capital city will be the Ark of the Covenant. And later, hopefully, the Beit HaMikdash. 
It may take a while until the temple will be built in Yerushalayim, but that desire to build the Mikdash, to become God's people, and want God's presence to be in our midst, through keeping his mitzvot, that will be one of the key differences between David and Shaul, and that will become one of the main reasons why David becomes the quintessential Mashiach, and the kingdom of Israel, for that reason, will always be associated with that desire of David and Melech.